0: Turn in your Bible to Ephesians. We're starting a new series on Ephesians. So Ephesians 1, the text is printed in the bulletin. Um, So new series, Ephesians, the um, title of the series is uh, United in Christ. Uh, You might ask why Ephesians, why this particular book? We could go anywhere in the scriptures. Um, After Genesis 1 through 3, uh, Genesis 1 through 3, which we just finished up, kind of leads Everywhere else in the scriptures. So, uh, why this? Um, It's a letter about the church. It's a letter to one of the churches that uh, Paul was uh, intimately involved with. Uh, The Apostle Paul uh, wrote this letter among many other letters. He wrote this letter from prison um, to one of the churches, one of the more uh, significant churches that we find uh, writings to in the New Testament. But it's not just a letter to the church, it's a letter about the church. It's a letter about uh, what it means to be the church. Um, And there's so many reasons why we need to think about that better, uh, to think about ecclesiology better. That's the fancy theological term for um, uh, thinking about the church, right? Uh, The study of the church. So there's a lot of reasons why we need better ecclesiology. Uh, Many of us are disappointed with our experience of the church. We wonder, well, how is it supposed to be? What's the church supposed to be about? What's it supposed to look like and do? Uh, really, according to the scriptures, um, many of us fight kind of a consumer mindset. Many of us fight kind of a mindset of self-sufficiency, like, well, I don't I really need the church. Uh, we live in a hyper-individualistic culture, and the, the church is, uh, is not a, a place just for individuals. It's a, it's a corporate place, right? So we need to understand that better. We need to have a corporate vision of our spirituality uh, Christianity is about knowing God and God tells us that this happens as we are in relationships with one another in the church. He says that primarily getting to know him involves knowing him in the church, right? So there's a lot of reasons why we need to think better about the church. Paul writes for the, uh, for the churches, um, uh, even when he's writing to individuals, the letters that he's written to Timothy and Titus are still, uh, Characterized by information that all the churches, all the people in the church need to know, all Christians need to know, not not just the pastors that he's writing to. And a lot of times, even in those letters, there'll be uh, second person plural addresses where uh, you can tell he's not just writing for individuals, he's writing for churches, right? So um, the church is a central feature of the New Testament. It's a central feature of the whole Bible, really, Uh, especially here, Paul's letter to the Ephesians, which is a sort of a treatise on the church. Um, So our our culture's estimation of the church is pretty low. Even many Christians' estimation of the church is pretty low or just off. Uh, But it's hard to overemphasize what you see in the Bible, the significance of the church in the scriptures. It's hard to overemphasize how important the Bible makes the church to be. And uh, we need to learn more about why that is and what that means And we need to take it into ourselves so that we view the church, so that we engage in the church in the way that God intends or or more so than uh, than we do now. So um, Paul's introduction uh, here, these first couple verses that we're going to look at, just verses one and two um, in his letter about the church, it's pretty standard introduction for him. Uh, So when we look at this, we could be looking at this in a whole lot of his letters, the same couple verses are the same main themes or main ideas in his greetings to the churches it's pretty standard it's pretty common to all his letters but it really does uh kind of uh, lead in well i think you could say that all of this letter is encapsulated even in these two simple verses that we're probably prone to just skip over as we read so uh, let's take a bit of a more in-depth look at them as an introduction to our series uh, let me pray then we'll read ephesians 1 Father, help. Uh, We're going to look at your word and people like us um, are prone to miss what you have to say to us. We pray that you would let none of us here have a superficial understanding of how this, your word, even these two short verses, uh, dramatically overhaul our lives. We pray that you would help us to truly understand your word by your spirit, that you would illumine our minds and uh, make this word real to us in a way that changes our lives, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the word of the Lord, thanks be to God. So you might have seen uh, recent video of Christians in Libya on the beach, uh, being beheaded by Muslims for being Christians, for refusing to um, uh, refusing to let go of their Christianity, refusing to, de- to de- deny their faith, Christians in orange jumpsuits lined up on the surf, uh, kneeling, the Muslims behind them, standing behind them, in all black, with masks and with weapons. Um, it's, it's one of the worst things I've ever seen, this video. Uh, maybe you've actually avoided it because you suspect it's pretty bad. It's pretty bad. Um, Paul used to be one of those guys in black. Uh, except that he was a Jew, and he didn't wear a mask everybody knew who he was. He was called Saul at the time, and Christians ran from him. He was one of those guys in the black. And just a few decades later, here he is in prison for the faith that he once persecuted, that he tried to eradicate, writing one of the most incredible letters ever to come from a man's pen about the glories of Jesus Christ and the church who he used to oppose violently, and he's writing to a group, group of Christians to whom he had devoted several years of his life, already to this point, to help them to know God's grace and, uh, and God's love for them. Right. Humanly speaking, I mean, it's such a dramatic reversal of a life, of a human life, it's almost unbelievable when you stop to think about it. Humanly speaking, it is impossible to take that man and make him this man. It's it's impossible to take Saul and make him Paul, humanly speaking. But we are not just speaking humanly when we look at the scriptures. God is the one who did it. God himself is the one who did it. Paul calls attention to um, the fact that he is who he is, he's an apostle of Christ Jesus. By the will of God, by the will of God, he's an apostle, which literally means, uh, in the original language, means someone who's been sent, sent one, Um, and that that person has an authority that's derived from the sender, the person who sends the one who's being sent. um, That person sends his authority with the apostle, and in this case, the sender is God. And there's an informal way, uh, an informal sense, in which uh, you see apostles all over the place in the New Testament. They're uh, just missionaries, right? Everybody who comes, uh, comes to preach the gospel is, in a sense, one sent by God with his message, with his authority. Uh, but there's a formal sense, there's a formal uh, concept of an apostle, which is uh, somebody who is an eyewitness to the resurrected Lord Jesus who saw him after he uh, had died and, and come back to life um, with a glorified body, who uh, is also a formal kind of an ambassador, right? And so Paul's, Paul's letters uh, have a lot uh, more weight, more significance, more authority behind them than a letter that I might write to you, right? Uh, because he is, a, he is formally that apostle in that for formal sense. And he's an apostle of Christ Jesus. He's sent by... The risen Lord, Jesus, to bear witness about the risen Lord. He sent by Jesus to talk about Jesus. Um, in Acts 9, Jesus says of Paul, uh, right about the time of his conversion, he says that he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. So none of this was Paul's idea. Right? That's kind of what Paul is saying. That's one of the things Paul is saying when he introduces himself, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God. None of this was my idea. Right? Uh, often Paul defends his apostleship to the readers in his churches. I mean, so many times he opens letters this way, but so many times he actually spends a lot of time in the letter defending his being sent by Jesus to talk about the gospel of Jesus Christ. And you should not hear when he's doing that, when he's defending his apostleship, when he's trying to convince you that he has come from God with a message from God. You should not hear him like you'd hear somebody kind of whiny saying, hey, you should listen to me. I'm God's messenger. You should listen to me. Right. That's that's not why he's saying it. That's not what he's trying to communicate by saying this. Instead, you should hear confidence in his voice. Saying, this is the message God himself wants you to hear. It could just be stuff that's made up by people. It could just be a human wanting you to hear a message. It's not that. It's God himself. By the will of God, I'm sent to you with this message. right? Jesus, God, took Saul and made him Paul so that you could hear this. Uh, And so he's saying... When he defends his apostleship, when he talks about this being the will of God, he says, if what I say challenges you, and your first response is kind of not want to hear this, if what I say challenges you like that, God says you need it. God says you need to hear it. If what I say seems maybe too good to be true, it's like, wow, I can't believe how good that is, maybe too good to be true, uh, God assures you that it is true. Right? This revelation comes to you from God's own mind, from God's own initiative. Not the initiative, not the m- minds of men, but from God himself. What kind of introduction could you give that would possibly be more enticing than that? To read on, right? This is coming from God himself. This is not normal, right? The scriptures are unique. The letters of Paul here, the, the letter to the Ephesians, it is unique because it's coming from God. In, it, in this introduction... You see, Paul's passion for the gospel of Jesus Christ, he is so compelled to come at them with this message because it's come, it comes from God. Uh, he's so compelled to come at them with this message from God that, that when he was in Ephesus earlier, you can find a bunch of background on Paul's interactions with the Ephesians in Acts chapter 19 and 20. When he was in Ephesus earlier, and there was a violent mob forming, probably a couple tens tens of thousands of people, uh, forming to... Uh, We've got to do something about these christians man um a violent mob was forming and he saw that assembly that hostile assembly as a great opportunity to preach about jesus christ and it took his friends actually restraining him holding him back um or he probably would have gone in there and got himself killed and eventually that's what the apostles did they preached to hostile people who killed them and uh that should be an indicator for us that whatever message it is that he's coming with is pretty important. <laughs> and we should listen. If, if he was in this whole thing, if Paul was in this whole thing for self-advancement, which is, you know, one of the reasons why we do most of the things we do, advancing, promoting ourselves, self-aggrandizing. If he were in this whole thing for those kind of reasons, he would not have sought to preach at so many hostile crowds. And he would not have given his life for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Um, but he wants his hearers to know that this message is from God himself, and it's, it's characterized by it is full of good news. And it should be incentive enough for us to give special attention to what he says. So <clears throat> he opens with a greeting, again, that, that is common for him. It's a benediction. It's wishing them grace and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, and this wish, this, this blessing, this benediction, this wish is... Um, for his readers it encompasses his whole motive towards them right? it encompasses everything that he wants for them it encompasses his whole purpose in writing to them and even it it uh, gives us a hint as to the very structure of his letter uh, grace and peace right? grace and peace so grace you should give a simple definition of it is unmerited favor uh, god loves you Right? He is merciful to you. He, he uh, has loving kindness towards you and favor towards you that you do not deserve. And in fact, it's kind of the opposite. You, you, um, you deserve the opposite. You deserve God's anger because of your sin, because of your rebellion, because of your walking away from him personally in a relationship with him and uh, walking away from his plan for your life, right? Um, we deserve the opposite of God's love. But he gives it to us anyway, and that's called grace. That is grace. Even though you don't deserve it, Paul says, May the goodwill of God be with you. So, the first half of his letter to the Ephesians, the first half of it is entirely descriptive of the actual grace of God toward his people. Chapters 1 through 3, the verbs, this is kind of one of the indicators here, uh, the truth of, of this concept and the structure that you find in this letter. The verbs are virtually 100% in the indicative mood. That is to say, um, they solely focus on who God is, what he has done, right? The the truth of the gospel, what has already taken place, this is reality, right? Um, Things that are characterized by God's favor toward people like us in spite of our rebellion. Good news, right? The gospel, the first half of Ephesians, Paul wants you to know, in fact, God himself wants you to know how exalted and glorious and eternal is the love of God for us and what wonderful things God has done for us, for our good, right? And in this letter in particular, the main theme of God's grace is that in Jesus Christ, in the gospel, in the person and work of Jesus Christ, God has created the church. He's united all kinds of people. In Christ, we'll talk more about this, but um, but this is His grace, right? Grace up front. It's meant to trigger peace. He wishes grace and peace to them. So the second part of this, <clears throat> peace, uh, is is the Greek uh, translation of the the Hebrew word for peace, which is shalom, right? We talked about this a little bit uh, in our last series on Genesis one through three. Shalom. It goes beyond just things being nice between each other. There's, there's not a hostility anymore, right? Uh, between two parties, peace, shalom, in the biblical sense, is uh, things being the way that they should be, right? Especially relationally. Especially relationally between you and God and between you and other people. But things being the way they should be, and that's good, right? Um, the the second half of Paul's letter focuses on this. It focuses on the results of the gospel in the everyday life of the church and in Christians' lives. It's the response of the Christian to the grace of God in Christ. So in Ephesians chapters 4 through 6, <clears throat> the second half, the language shifts and the verbs um, which were almost 100% um, in the indicative mood, this is what God has done, this is who God is, this is how he loves you, this is what he's done. Those verbs shift to take on the, a different mood, the imperative mood, right? Which is, uh, if the gospel is true, then this is how you should live, right? Do this. It's, it's commandments, right? These are the changes that you should see in your relationships. God wants us to live, and these these changes, the way that we're supposed to live in light of the gospel, the way that God wants us to live, according to his message, is... Uh, characterized by peace and shalom things being the way that they're supposed to be right this is how you should live uh, in light of the gospel which is possible only because of the gospel of grace which is described in the first half so i'm going to hit on that over and over again throughout the course of this series uh, because um, it is automatic for us to uh, switch those things around right to to um, get these things backwards, to think that we have to work to earn God's favor, right? It is automatic for us. So we'll, we'll talk about that uh, a bunch. We'll talk about it later in this sermon and also later in the series. But our obedience to his commands, they're supposed to come as a result, as a response to the grace that stands there, eternal and glorious in the gospel of Jesus Christ. So grace comes first. Grace comes first. It always comes first in the Christian life according to God otherwise uh, if we flip that around we have no warrant at all for believing that we could ever have true peace for believing that we could ever get what it is we, we think uh, is good and right and the way things are supposed to be between us and God and, and between us and each other uh, the, this world being fixed this world coming to to true shalom we have if we flip that equation around, um, we have no warrant at all for believing that we will find true peace. Right? The peace that we can try to achieve, that we can try to manage in our lives, if this is a kind of a work your way into God's favor and try to attain by becoming a better person uh, this, this kind of peace that is hanging out there in front of us like a like a carrot stick, right? <clears throat> that peace, that thinking of peace that way. It's no true peace. It's no true sh- shalom. So we usually think this is how people in the world and the, even people in the church uh, with a, a huge majority of our thoughts, at least in our background uh, thoughts, we usually think peace is synonymous with hard-earned comforts, right? Yikes. <laughs> that was a big spider. Go. <clears throat> um <laughs> uh, <clears throat> yeah We usually think peace Is synonymous with hard earned comfort Right You need to work for your shalom You need to work to set things the way you think they should be Right You have a vision of what is right and good I'm going to make that happen By accomplishing that And um, by working for it We think we'll arrive at peace When we've maybe got enough stuff Right Pretty common in our culture is to have our concept of peace wrapped up with, uh, with our material possessions and comforts. Uh, when I've gotten enough stuff, however, however much enough is, it's usually just a little more. Uh, we never quite have enough. Um, we think we'll attain peace when our romantic pursuits pay off. Or we think we'll attain peace when our spouse finally sees the light, uh, things, things from our perspective, right? Um, or we think we'll, we'll get peace, things will be right, we'll have arrived when, um, when we've put in enough effort at school or at work and someone recognizes us for that and pats us on the back and grants us acceptance and graduates us or promotes us, right? You work hard to attain, to achieve, peace, this vision of reality, things being the way that they're supposed to be, we think peace looks like a, a long retirement with a big bank account and a healthy body right? and a good looking spouse, someone to uh, enjoy a long retirement with and, uh, and travel with, you know, enjoying what we've worked so hard for. I mean, it's, it's as simple as we just do things that we do in order to get our concept of goodness to happen, right? Whatever that concept is, I want people to love me. I want people to accept me. I don't want people to reject me. I want to feel glorious. I want power. I want wealth. I want comfort and security. I want these things, and that's in our minds, that's what peace is. And we can get that if we try hard enough, if we do the right things, right? Whatever that is. And it's insidious. Think in this way. Everybody in the world thinks this way. We all think this way, right? I, I confess this uh, to our officers on Friday uh, morning. We have a weekly meeting where we get together for kind of spiritual development early in the morning on Fridays. And um, uh, I really struggle with trying to find peace, which for me consists of uh, you saying good things about me and the way that I try to achieve that is by ministering well right? by uh, saying amazing things right, on Sunday mornings uh, I'm failing miserably when it comes to the length, uh, the amount of amazing things that I'm saying <clears throat> so I'm thwarting myself in that purpose of hearing good job pastor, that was great <laughs> right? Uh, but but that's, kinda, that's something that runs in the background of my mind. Even though I'm aware of that, the fact that I do that, even though I'm aware of the problem, it still drives me. I do the things that I do in life and in ministry in order to build an identity, in order to get acceptance, in order to get love. Right? I do that. You do that. You do that. Um, And that's the kind of peace that the world offers. It's just held right out there in front of you. If you do what's right, you can get it, right? Your vision of the good life, you can get it if you try hard enough and if people recognize it. Um, It's the kind of peace that you have to earn. It is utterly different from the kind of peace that God offers to us in the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is utterly different. Uh, His peace, his shalom, it comes to us as a gift of his grace. And in his grace, he gives us everything that we need to actually find true peace, to actually start participating in the world the way that we're supposed to and uh, seeing our relationships restored to be the way that they're supposed to be, uh, the vision of the good life that God himself wants for us. All of that, all the resources for that, Everything comes to us as a free gift of his grace and what his peace looks like as Paul writes in his uh, in the later chapters of Ephesians. What his peace looks like is harmonious relationships in every sphere of life. Peace with God. Peace with each other. Peace in all of our relationships. Right. Harmonious relationships. It looks like working together in the church to cultivate an atmosphere of love and acceptance and grace, right? It looks like uh, living out our callings and exercising our gifts in true joy, all of which is supposed to be fueled by the gospel. We don't engage in our callings and exercise our gifts in order to achieve a sense of, uh, of rightness, but it's because we are made right with God in the gospel of his son, that we can uh, live out the gospel in our callings and in our uh, exercising of our gifts. Uh, it looks like maintaining confidence in the face of opposition. You, you can have real peace as a gift of God's grace that will allow you to have confidence to face anything in this world, even opposition, even even strong, violent opposition. It means being at rest in your relationship with God primarily, right? At rest in your soul. You can have that. It's free for the asking. It's free for the having, right? As a gift of his grace. All of it flows from the gospel for people like us. People like us, right? We're sinners. We're people who don't deserve this, we're people who get it wrong all the time, constantly, throughout our lives. We get this wrong, but it's there for us. Paul addresses his congregation here as the saints who are faithful in Christ Jesus. The saints. If you know yourself well at all, you know you're you're not a saint in and of yourself, right? You probably don't feel much like a saint. If you do, there's probably something wrong, right? If you feel like in and of yourself, hey, I'm good enough, there's probably something wrong. I'm going to be honest about that. You, you probably don't feel that way, though. You don't feel like a saint. You might think that, you know, there's some maybe hefty spiritual requirements to achieve sainthood. I mean, the church has kind of wrongly set that up in the past throughout history. You know, after someone dies, someone goes back with a checklist and sees do they perform miracles, do they live a holy life, you know okay we can put them on the church calendar as a saint they've graduated to that level that's that's a wrong way of thinking about uh, when the bible talks about saints there are no hefty spiritual requirements for you to achieve sainthood right you might think you need to try harder to be a true saint but that's not how the bible talks about saints being a saint is a binary thing yes or no zero or one right uh Either you are or you're not. There is no try. Right. I saw one smile there, a couple of smiles. Uh, <clears throat> either you are a saint or you're not. It does mean holy one. And that, that term, you could spend a bunch of sermons even talking about what that means. We're not going to talk much about it. It means holy one. It means one who's been set apart. It means distinct one. <clears throat> but sainthood does not depend on your distinction. It does not depend on your personal, personal holiness. Right? It does not depend on your efforts. That's why this is a binary thing, and a yes or no. Uh, if you look to Jesus Christ in faith to make you right with God and you rest upon him alone as he is offered to you in the gospel, then it is his holiness... It is his distinction that sets you apart, that makes you a saint. If you're united to Christ by faith, you are a saint. No matter who you are, no matter what you've done, no matter what level or progress you've made in cleaning up your life for God, right? Uh, if you trust in Christ, you are a saint. And that's the extreme grace of the gospel, right? Extreme grace. Saul was one of the guys in black. Behind the Christians in orange. And he's a saint. And so are you, not because of who you are, but because of Jesus. That is extreme grace. Everything good about Jesus Christ counts for you. Everything good about Jesus Christ is yours through your union with him. While everything that's bad about you, which is pretty much everything, everything bad about you counted against Jesus at the cross. And he took that from you through your union with him. God took your unholiness and he killed it in Jesus' death. He killed your unholiness in Jesus' death and he gave Jesus' holiness to you. As a free gift, everything that you need to be at peace with God, to experience harmonious relationships, to engage in the world in the way that you're supposed to engage, and even that that future vision of the whole world being set right, uh, set back right, and being brought into true shalom, peace, everything working the way it's supposed to work, everything about that is granted free of charge to those who are in Christ. In Christ, that language, Paul. Uh, likes to use he uses it well over a hundred times through his letters here uh, you see language in Christ in the Lord in him you see that language uh, more than 30 times in uh, even a short letter to the Ephesians it's through your faith it's through your baptism your union with Jesus Christ that his humanity Everything that's good about him as the perfect human being, as the true human being, everything good about him is yours, vicariously, as you're united to him. It's really yours, right? He belongs to you, and uh, you are in him. Living vicariously through others might normally be a bad idea, right? You don't recommend this. Uh, People distort this. People put... Too much weight on their kids when they're trying to live vicariously through them. You want to see them succeed. You push them, you drive them into the ground so that you can feel good about their success as if you're the one that achieved it, Um, right? It's it's a way to escape your own life by imagining living the lives of other people, Uh, putting too much weight on them. They can't bear up under your hopes and your dreams. (coughs) Living vicariously is a mechanism that is only intended by God for you to do with one person. And that's Jesus Christ, his son. You are supposed to live vicariously through him and him alone. Only through his death, his substitutionary atonement, can you truly escape the guilt of sins that characterize your life, your life of rebellion against God. You cannot escape your life of rebellion against God unless you live in another life, unless you live in Jesus, unless you're found in him, in him, so that his substitutionary atonement counts for you and deals with your problem, your problem with God. Only through him can we know the blessings of God rather than the curses of God, only by being found in him. Because as the scriptures say, He's a mighty fortress, and the righteous run into him. Right? Only in him can we know the blessings of God rather than the curses. Only he can truly handle all the weight of our hopes and our dreams and bring them all to glorious fruition in his resurrection, in his ascension, and in his return when he makes all things new. He's the only one who can handle the weight, the pressure, the burden. Of all of our hopes and dreams to set this back right and to find peace, real peace, real shalom that covers the entire world. He's the only one who can handle it. And uh, you only get to experience that as you live vicariously in him by faith. As you are united to him through his spirit. His identity, when you do that, his identity is yours. Everything that's true of him is true of you. If you're in Christ Jesus, that's the grace of God for you. That's the grace of God for you. There's this uh, quote from Dietrich Bonhoeffer that I put at the beginning of the bulletin on the front page. He says that the Christian no longer lives of himself by his own claims and his own justification. Everything you were trying to do in your life, uh, the claims you were trying to make, the, the justification you were trying to get for yourself by living in a certain way, earning peace with God earning the good life, the Christian no longer lives of himself that way. The Christian lives wholly by the truth of God's word in Jesus Christ. Right? The Christian, uh, you don't live in yourself anymore, not in and of yourself. You live in and of Jesus Christ. And the message that Paul was sent out with as an apostle, as a sent one, one speaking with God's own authority, the message that God ordained him, God took Saul and made him Paul so that you could hear this message, that he could communicate this to you and reveal this to you is that you can give up trying to build your own identity in every area of your life. Every way you try to do that, whether it's through good parenting, success at work, impressing others with my hospitality, whatever it is, you're trying to build your own identity trying to achieve something in this life, trying to achieve the good life, trying to get somewhere with God or with others based on who you are and what you can do. The message that God has for you through the Apostle Paul is you can give that up. You can rest in the the new identity that is freely yours in the true human, in Jesus Christ, in his own identity, which is yours if you're in him. And all you have to do is trust in him and that becomes true for you. And that's all right up front just in the greeting. Just in the greeting. Things keep getting better from here. Amen. Let's let's pray. Father, we pray that you would teach us to appreciate the vicarious life that we live through Christ. Teach us to appreciate Christ who lived and died. He gave himself for us and rose from the dead for us and ascended into heaven for us. And will return once again for us. We pray that his life and his works, the whole uh, timeline of his existence and everything that's good and true and beautiful about him, we pray that you would strike the truth of it deeper into our hearts that it is actually true of us. You view us, even as you view your wonderful and glorious son, Jesus, because of your grace. You've set that up as the way that we are to relate with you, the way that we're to be reconciled to you, the way that we're to live in this world. It all comes from being in Christ. We pray that you would teach us on a regular basis, a daily and hourly basis, what that means, that you would help us, To find our identity in Christ, our righteousness in Christ, our acceptance and our security and our comfort and our joy in uh, in Christ. Help us to find all of our life in Christ so that we would be able to live in a way that exhibits your peace in our relationships more and more. We realize we'll struggle with our own sins and struggle with um, many temptations and trials and tribulations in this life. And much suffering and persecution and ultimately, um, ultimately even this life will end badly for every single one of us in death. And yet your word uh, stands eternally as the last word about us in our relationship with you, in our life with you. Your word is Jesus Christ and we want to be found in him so that we will live forever in him in true shalom, in the new heavens and the new earth. We pray that you would convince us of this reality. It's, it's right there on black and white in front of us in the scriptures, and it's bought with the price of the blood of your own son for us, so it's guaranteed to us. We pray that you would fix our hearts and minds on Christ as the source of our life uh, throughout this week as we go from here. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.